The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. Hello, my name is Rabbi Pesach Kron, and I am so proud to have been invited by two wonderful young men, tzaddikim, that are accomplishing so much for Klai Yisrael, Daniel Aguilar and Nisanel Epstein. Let me tell you about the organizations that these two young men are running and are taking care and sponsoring this presentation. Daniel Aguilar has an organization called StoriesToInspire.org. Now, if you go on that website, StoriesToInspire.org, you will be able to get close to 3,000 stories on every topic that you could possibly imagine from many, many wonderful Rebbeim speakers, Askanim, men and women who teach Torah to Klal Yisrael and who tell fabulous stories on fabulous topics. Go on storiestoinspire.org and you will indeed be inspired by these stories. Now, if you don't have access to the internet, it's not a problem. They have a hotline and the hotline, you can write it down, is 718-400-7145. The hotline again is 718-400-7145. And you can listen to so many of these great stories that will inspire you. Now, if you want to sign up, to get a WhatsApp of these stories, you can get two a day. The WhatsApp number is 310-212-1205. 310-210. That's the right number. 1205. Again, it's 310-210-1205. And the message there, just type in, add me. And you will be added and you will get these two stories every single day. So whether you go on storiestoinspire.org or you go on the hotline or you go on the WhatsApp, you can be inspired by these great stories. Now, Nassau Epstein has devoted his life to the mitzvah of tzitzis and talis, talisim. He's just an incredible human being. And he has a WhatsApp. You can go on that, 856-745-9588. I'll repeat that, 856-745-9588. And as I said, if you want to know anything about the halacha of tzitzis or a talus, and if you want to buy tzitzis or you want to get tzitzis for somebody who is becoming a balchuva, call Nasano. Get in contact with him. He will help you. Tzitzis. Talisim, a parochas for a shul, beautiful talis bags. He's involved in all these things. Great people. Get to know them, and they are sponsoring this presentation. Now, Nassano had a grandfather that passed away a little while ago. I knew him very well. His name was Dr. Howard Feintuch. What a wonderful person. I was in his house numerous times in Houston. I got to know the family. And Nebuchadnezzar passed away. So this dedication of this presentation is L'Zecha Nishmas Reb Tzvi Eliezer Moshe Ben Aaron Yasef. Again, Tzvi Eliezer Moshe Ben Aaron Yasef, Dr. Howard Feintuch. His neshama should have an aliyah, and all that we gain from these stories that I'm about to tell should be an aliyah for his neshama. Now, both Daniel and Asano wanted me to tell you two phenomenal stories. And I must show you that this book just came out just a week ago. It's called Yomim Naraim with the Magid. 
And in there, I have more than 130 stories and insights from Elul all the way through Yom Kippur. And I hope that they'll inspire you. And both Daniel and Asano felt that two of the most wonderful stories in this book are ones that we should all hear, and I am about to tell you them. The first one I call Wake Up for Your Creator. Now, this story happened with me when I was a teenage boy. My father sent me to Eretz Yisrael. I used to go to camp every summer. And that year, in that summer, 1964, he said to me, you know, Agudas Yisrael, the world organization, is having a knesia, a gathering, and many tzaddikim, admirim, rosh hashivas, rabbonim, they're all going to be in Eretz Yisrael. I would like you to go. Now, I had never been on a plane, certainly not overseas, and... He said, you go to Eretz Yisrael, go with your reel-to-reel tape recorder and record the speeches that these G'daylim will be giving and then you can stay in Eretz Yisrael for a little while afterwards and go visit them and you will grow from this experience and certainly how right he was. And of course, I came there and I thought that Eretz Yisrael was farmland. It was the first time I was in Eretz Yisrael. I didn't realize they have traffic and they have buildings and apartment buildings and telephone booths. Not too many in those days. But it was a modern country just like all other countries. And of course, there was the Knesseya. And I heard speeches from Rabbi Yelapian and from Rabbi Baruch Taladano and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Tremendous G'daylam, Rabbi Kreisworth. They were all there and they were all speaking. Now, after the Knesseya, which lasted a couple days, I began traveling around Eretz Yisrael visiting various G'daylam. Now, in those days, nobody called to America. The calls were too expensive, and with the time difference, it wasn't easy. You had to go to a post office to make an appointment to be able to make a phone call. So I wrote letters, and I got letters from my parents. And one day, my father writes me, and he says, You know, I heard that there's somebody who wakes up people for slichas. Is there any way that you could go, I know it's early in the morning, maybe 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and he goes to the streets of Yerushalayim and the old city, not in the old city, we didn't have the old city yet, but near the Mandelbaum Gate, in the Bukharian Heiser it was called, and he wakes up people for Slichas, would you do me a favor, it would mean so much to me if I could get a recording of that. Now, I didn't even know if the guy still did it, I asked a lot of people, some people said there used to be somebody who did it, nobody knew for sure if he was still alive, if he was still doing it. I found out subsequently that it was a man by the name of Rabbi Yudel Cohen, and he was already an older person, and I took a friend of mine and we went it was 3 30 4 o'clock in the morning and we went down to where the Mandelbaum gate is that was kind of the border between Eretz Yisrael and Jordan at the time we certainly didn't have the old city of Yerushalayim at the time and we were waiting to see if we could hear somebody that's waking up people for slichas and then in the distance we noticed that there was a, a short person he was standing in front of a two-story building, and he was calling out something. We tried to make it out, and then we heard him say, Wake up, Fasliches. Well, you know, I know it was Elul, and he was waking people up, Fasliches, but that couldn't be what my father meant. I mean, there was nothing musical about it. There was nothing so special about it. Anybody could do that. Okay, he did it, but what was so special about that? Anyhow, uh, we ran towards him, and of course the man was frightened because at 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, he never saw anybody in the streets, and now he had two young teenagers are running towards the guy, and we were carrying like this chifetz chashud, you know, this tape, big tape recorder, reel-to-reel. He didn't know what in the world it was. 
And I said to him, don't worry, Daigin it, Daigin it, we're Americans, you know, we're, we're okay. I just want to ask you something. And I said to him, you know, I'm from America, I'm going back in two or three days. And my father said that there's somebody who wakes up people for slichas and he sings a beautiful niggin. Do you know who that might be? And he looks me up and down and he says, Dos benich. that's me. I said, that's you? You're the one who sings that song? I certainly didn't hear him sing it before. I said, you know, this is a tape recorder. I don't know if you know what this means. But if you would sing it, and I'm going to put on this tape recorder, my father would be able to listen to it when I come back to America. I said, could you please do it for me? He looked me up and down again to see if I was really authentic. And I guess he felt I was. And he said, okay. And he cleared his voice. And he sang the most beautiful thing I had ever heard in my life. And I would like to sing it to you. It is unforgettable. Imagine, it's dark at night. There's nobody out in the streets. All the lights are shut. No house lights are on. Only the Mount Scopus Hotel on the other side of the Jordan that was lit up. And it goes like this. Yisrael am Kodesh Shteitoif Lavoidas Aboirei Rotskatsvi Vigibur Koari Lasois Ritsoino Vicho Shabashamayim Yisrael am Kodesh Shteitoif Lavoidas Aboirei then he turns to me, okay? Oh, was that okay? Let me translate. Yisrael am Kodesh, Yisrael the holy nation. Get up for your creator, to serve your creator. Rotz Katzvi, that's the Mishnah Novice. Rotz Katzvi, run like a deer. Giboy Kari, be strong like a lion. Rotz Katzvi, Giboy Kari, to do the will of your Father in heaven. Is that amazing? What a way to wake up for slichas. And I'm telling you, I recorded it. I brought it back to my father. Without exaggeration, he must have listened to it a hundred times. He loved it. It was so beautiful. It was so authentic. It was so Eretz Yisrael. It was so slichas. It was so Elul. And that winter, 1965, was the first time Rav Shalom Shvadron came to America. And my father played it for him. I still remember at the dining room table. And my father said, Rab Shalom, I'd like to bring you back to Eretz Yisrael. And he played that recording. And tears came down Rab Shalom's eyes right here. This is Rab Shalom, the Maggid of Yerushalayim. He was in our home. I get the chills when I tell it to you. And he said, I remember as a little boy that Yid would sing it. And four o'clock in the morning, I would hear it. And then after he finished... I just rolled over my bed, I put my blanket over me, and I went back to sleep. But how geschmack that was. How special that was. And Rab Shalom cried from that memory. Yisrael am Kodesh, Teitoif Lavoides Aboirei, Rotz Katzvi Vegibor Kari, Lasais Ritzayin Avicha Shabashamayim. Let's all try to live by that credo. Especially now in Elul, Sersimei Tshuva, when we say Slichas, let us reach the summit of Yom Kippur, with tshuva, tefillah, and staka. That's the first story. Here's the second one. This second story is so great. Again, it's in this book. As I said, it's called A Schaefer at Seashore. 
Also, one of the most moving stories I ever heard. A woman, Mrs. Leah Eiskrau, Allah Shalom, once told it to me. We were on a trip together. I led a whole trip to, to Europe. And on the bus, she told me this amazing story. There was a fellow, let's call him Nachman. Nachman was a Kailo fellow in America. And then eventually, he went into business and he moved his family to Eretz Yisrael. Now, every once in a while, he would come back to America to do business. And he had a friend, he had a cousin actually, Nati. Nati was not religious. And Nati and Zahava, they moved from Eretz Yisrael to America. They moved down to Miami. Nachman wanted to go, he made Aliyah to go to Eretz Yisrael. And his cousin did just the opposite. He left Eretz Yisrael to come to America. And of course, Nachman would go down to Miami every once in a while when he came to America. And he came to Nati's home. Of course, he couldn't eat in his house, and Nati understood that. So either they went out to one of the kosher restaurants, or else they would eat on paper plates. He would go to a kosher takeout place and get the food, and they would eat on paper plates with paper dishes and uh, silverware or whatever. And that's how they would fabring. That's how they would get together. This went on every time Nachman came back to America. One year, Nachman comes to America, he comes to Miami, and he notices that the yarmulke on Nati's head is sitting on him perfectly. He knew every time when he came that Nati probably just put on the yarmulke five minutes before Nachman walked into the house, but now it looked like he was wearing it all the time. And he looked around, there was a mezuzah on every doorpost. And not only that, there was a safer on the table. And Nachman was surprised. He said, Nati, you know, has there been a change around here? He said, yeah. My wife and I, we became religious. Nachman couldn't believe it. He hugged him and he kissed him and he said, how did that happen? That's wonderful. He said, it began two years ago. And Nati told him this amazing story. He said, one afternoon, it was a hot afternoon, he and his wife, they were sitting on their front porch and suddenly they noticed a whole group of men and women coming down towards the water. But they were all dressed. Beautiful suits, shirts, ties. It's not the way you go swimming and the women were dressed as if it was a holiday. And then I remembered, oh my gosh, it is a holiday. It's Rosh Hashanah. These people are going down to Tashlech. Now, he hadn't been in Tashlech for years, ever since he was a kid in Eretz Israel. And... He said to Nachman, I don't know why. Believe me, I don't know why. But I decided, you know what? I'm going to put on my kippah and I'm going to go, I'm going to follow these people because I know exactly what they're doing. And he started walking behind the people. Some of the people noticed him. They looked at him. He certainly wasn't dressed young of dick. And he just had this kippah that was planted on his head. And he came down to the water like everybody else. And somebody came over to him with a mox and he said, uh, excuse me, do you read Hebrew? He said, of course I read Hebrew. I'm an Israeli. He said, would you like to say this prayer? He said, I know what this is. This is Tashlach. I used to do it as a kid. I haven't done it in a long time, but I'll be happy to do it. And he read that paragraph. And then suddenly, a fellow came over to him, and he said, excuse me, did you hear Shofar today? He said, no, I didn't. He said, you know, I have a shofar. I'm the Baltakea in the shul. I'm the one who blows shofar. I happen to have a little shofar with me. Would you like to hear shofar? It's Rosh Hashanah. He said, yeah, I know. I didn't hear shofar today. Yeah, that would be nice. And he blew shofar. Everybody turned around. Nobody ever heard that. You blow shofar at the Ashlach. And this guy's blowing, you know, all the kailas, kia, shwam, truat, kia. 
And he's like a machine. It's amazing. And finally, when he finished, so Nati turned around and he was going to leave. And, and the Baltikia said to him, wait a second. Let me tell you something. My name is Moshe Katz. You know, and I happened to notice where you lived. I saw that you started following us. And, you know, you don't really live so far away from our shul. So, my name is Moshe Katz. I'd like you to remember that because if you ever want to come to the shul or if you have any questions, you could always call me or you could call the rabbi at the synagogue. Well, Nati said to Nachman, I wasn't really interested. I didn't care what his name was. But as I turned to leave and say, Gajantiftim, you know, Chag Sameach, he said to me, don't forget, my name is Moshe Katz. And I was thinking, like, you know, get a life. I don't care what your name is, but okay, fine. And then he goes home. He comes home and Zahava says to him, so what happened? He tells him the whole story that it went down there. Somebody asked him if he wants to say the tree love on the machzah. And he said, Tashlech. And he said, all of a sudden, this guy comes over to me. I didn't know who he was. He kept insisting that I know his name, Moshe Katz. And he blew a shofar for me. And Zahava's face turns white. And Nati says, you okay? She says, what did you say? Who blew shofar for you? He said, Moshe Katz. What's the difference? She says, Moshe Katz, that was the name of my grandfather. My grandfather was the Baltokea in Bialystok. He blew Schaefer in Bialystok. I can't believe that the same name, Moshe Katz is the guy who blew Schaefer for you, and that was my grandfather's name. He blew Schaefer in Bialystok. Well, Nati said to Nachman, even now, I, I, I couldn't get over that. And just somehow, Zahav and I just felt that this was orchestrated by God. It couldn't just happen that the one who blew Schaefer for me was Moshe Katz. He said a couple days after Yontif, I decided to go to the synagogue. And we began talking to the rabbi. And we indeed met Moshe Katz. And slowly but surely, they were so kind and so wonderful to us. And that's how we became Bali Tshuva. While Nachman hugged his cousin again, he couldn't believe it. And wherever Nachman went, he told the story. And finally, when he came back to Eretz Yisrael, he went to Rab Chaim Kanievsky. Listen to this. He goes to Rab Chaim, and he says to Rab Chaim, tells him the whole story. And he says, could you believe it? It's amazing. And Rab Chaim said, of course, Hashem orchestrates these kind of miracles every day. So he said, Rebbe, could I just ask this question? And he asked a great question. He said, if Hashem wanted that my cousins, Nati and Zahaba, should become religious, why didn't he send Moshe Katz to them years ago? Why did he wait till now? And Rabbi Chaim Kanesi gave a great answer. And he said, Hashem waits for somebody to take the first step. And once he put on his kippah, and he went with the Olam to Tashlech, Hashem said, you took the first step. Now I'm going to send you Moshe Katz. And that's what Hashem is waiting for. And I want to show you something amazing. Now there's a medrash. And the Medrash tells us that Kavayachol, which means, so to speak, Hashem has an argument with Klal Yisrael. Hashem says to the Jewish nation in Malachi Gimel Pasuk Zion, Shuvu Eli, you return to me, you take the first step, and then I'll come back to you. Hashem wants us to take the first step. But what do we say? We say to Hashem, no, no, no. We say in Eicha, hey, Pasuk Hafalaf, Hashivinu Hashem Eilecha, you take the first step, you come back to us. And then, Venashuvah, we'll come back to you. Hashem wants us to take the first step. But we say, Hashem, you take the first step. And you know something? If you take a look at that word, Venashuvah, you won't believe it. Take a look at it. The hey is missing. Hey is the letter for tshuva. 
And you know something? The Brocha Hashivenu begins with a hey. It ends with a hey. Hey and hey is ten. That's the Aseris Yemei Tshuva. That's what the Torah tells us. And if hey is a letter of Tshuva, that's why it's missing in the word Vinashuva. Because if Hashem has to wait for Him to take the first step, and then we come back to Hashem, that's not the real Tshuva. It's Tshuva, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is when we take the first step. And that's what the Medrash tells us in Shashirim, Perikei Beis. Omar HaKadosh Baruch Yisrael. Hashem says to Yisrael, Bonai, my children, Pischuli Pesach Echad Shel Tshuva. Open up for me the Pesach of Tshuva. Kachudosh HaMachan, even like the hole of a needle. Just open up the door a little bit. Vani Pesach Lechem Psochim. I'm going to open up such wide doors. Sheagoles Rekronis Nechnosis Boy. Cows and chariots will be able to fit into it. Just take the first step. And that's why the hay is missing in Hashuma. Hashem wants us to take the first step. Not that he's going to have to take the first step. And that's what we learn over here. That's what Rabbi Chaim taught us. Why did Hashem finally send Moshe Katz? Because Nati took the first step. He put on his kippah and he went to Tashlach. When we hear the sound of the show for this year, let us awaken to the idea of tshuva and take the first step of improvement in tshuva and tefillah and staka. And in that way, Be'ezus Hashem will be blessed with the year of Yeshua's and the Chomos and Brochanatzlacha. Thank you so much for listening. Baruch Hashem, it's finally here. The new Torah Anytime app. It's a revolutionary, game-changing app that has so many incredible features and enhancements. It's available right now on the iPhone App Store or an Android Play Store. And don't just get it for yourself. Get everyone you know to get the new Torah Anytime app as well. You're right, Paige Zachron, for your tremendous, powerful story and message. I want to thank Rabbi Krohn for all his tremendous work just for Klaus. As we know, Rabbi Krohn just authored in a tremendous safer, tremendous Jewish book on the topic of Yamim Yamin Noraim with the Magid. As, no, as we know, it's such, it's such we're right now Yam Noraim time, and we're at the Yam Noraim event. And everyone, you can either go. Um, online, artschool.com, or go to your local Judaica store. And right now, if you really want to prepare for Yom Narayim, not just sit back and say, the Yom Narayim, they, they just came. But you want to really prepare, well, a great way it could be, if you get if you, if you purchase right now the, the, the book by Rabbi Kron, the Yom, Yomim Narayim with the Magid. It's a great, great honor to, to introduce Rabbi Echio Spiro. As we know, Rabbi Spiro is as well as a tremendous, is, is a, is a tremendous author. The, 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 the Touch by a Story series by Art School sold thousands upon thousands of copies on all topics to heal him stories and and you name it he's probably written about it and it's a great great honor to come on here about Spiro. Can you believe it Rosh Hashanah is here the Yom Hadin the day of judgment it feels like just yesterday we were here and now one year has passed and it's time to be judged again in truth it's pretty scary but the Torah has a different term for Rosh Hashanah. A term that perhaps gives us more reason for hope and encouragement. It's called Yom Teruah. A day of blowing. A day of blasts. Referring to, of course, the sound of the Teruah. You know, there's a few different sounds that the Shaifer makes. The Tkiah, Toot. The Shvarim, Doot, doot, doot. And then the trua. 
And if you think about it, it's like an incessant pounding. It's banging. What's the meaning of the trua? And Reb Shimshin Pinkis gives a very enlightening explanation. Reb Shimshin Pinkis explains that the term trua, and you have to listen, is related to the word vayetar, the tough, the reish, the ayin. The trua is found in vayetar, the ayin, the tough, and the reish. Because vayetar yitzchak lenoichach ishtoi, when Yitzchak and Rivka are davening for a child, remember, they've been married a long time and they have not yet been blessed with children. It says, Vayetar Yitzchak. And Rashi explains, Hiftzir v'hirbe betfila. He was incessant about his davening. If someone has not been blessed with a child for a long time, then he goes to the door of the Almighty and he bangs on the door. And he says, God, let me in. Please answer my prayers. And so the Trua reminds us that Rosh Hashanah is a time that we bang on the door of the Almighty and we say, God, please let us in. Hear our prayers, listen to our requests, and please save us. But there's another meaning to the word, ayin, tough reish. An eser is a pitchfork. A pitchfork when the farmer takes the hay and he picks it up and then he turns it over. It's the purpose of a pitchfork. And the Gemara in Sukkadaf Yodalid says that the eser, the pitchfork, is like when the Almighty takes the din, the judgment, and he flips it and he turns it into rachamim, into mercy. That's right. Hashem is judging us, but He's an all-merciful God. And if we bang on His door and we beg, and He's waiting for us to do so, He will listen to our pleas. I want to tell you one of my favorite all-time stories. I put this in my first book some 17 years ago. But I love the story, and it's very timely. And I hope you enjoy it. There was a 21-year-old boy who runs onto a train. He looks completely disheveled, exhausted. And he's staring out into space, into nowhere. And there's a man who looks very sharp, an accomplished businessman, wearing a beautiful suit, Ferragamo shoes, a beautiful Stefano Ricci tie. And he's standing there with his alligator briefcase. And he looks at the young man, and after a little while, he says, Can I help? You okay? He says, No, it's all right. And he keeps on asking him as they're on this train for a, a long while. And finally, he says to the kid, Come on. You know, I know a lot of people. I have the means to help you. Tell me what's wrong. And the young man says, All right, I'll tell you my story. You see, I was 15 years old, very unpopular. Nobody liked me in school, but I was very smart. And I discovered and invented a certain type of microchip. And all of a sudden, overnight, I was a millionaire, but really, really wealthy. My parents told me, hey, easy with the money. But all of a sudden, I was popular. Everyone liked me, including a young lady. And I became 
her friend. Eventually, we got married and my parents were a little skeptical. And I told them, you know what? Stay out of my business. I don't need you and I don't need your help. I rented a beautiful penthouse apartment in Manhattan, bought very, very fancy cars, was living the life until one day somebody came over to me and he says, hey, I got the business opportunity of a lifetime. And he sold me a bill of goods, but there was nothing there. The whole investment was really a fluke. Overnight, I was penniless. Soon, the bank started sending me letters. I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't pay for my cars. I had a child at that time. My wife took my child, ran away, and I was left with nothing. Before long, me, someone who was a millionaire, who had everything, was homeless and penniless. I was starving. I would go literally to the back of restaurants, to their garbage cans, to look for food. One day I had no choice. I was laying there on a park bench late at night. I was crying and I decided, I'm writing my parents a letter. Dear mom and dad, I know a number of years ago, I told you to stay out of my life. But you know what? I've fallen on hard times and I need your help. And I wrote to them my entire story, everything that I just told you right now. And I told them I'm coming on a train and I'm coming home. And I understand if you don't want to see me. But I don't have the courage to face you and for you to tell me that. So I'm coming in on this and this train at this and this time. There is an oak tree 100 feet before the train stops. And if you want me to get off, and you want me back in your life, then hang a white flag from the tree. And then he looks at the guy and he says, you know what, we're coming up to the stop and I don't have the courage to look. Could you look for me? And the guy who's moved to tears says, sure. And the train is coming to a stop. 500 feet, 400, 300. 200, 100 feet, and it's about to stop. And this young man with tears in his eyes looks up hopefully, and he asks him, well, was there a white flag? And he looks down and he says, the entire tree is draped in white cloth. He runs off the train and runs into his mother's arms, home once again. A short while ago, we had it all super successful. And then we realize the day of judgment is coming, and sometimes we look and we feel empty. And we say, Hashem, we want back in. But we need you to tell us that you want us. Look around, Rosh Hashanah. The Urin has a white cloth. The Bima's covered in white. And Hashem says, please, my children, I'm waiting for you. Bang on my door. I want to give you a hug and a kiss and tell you, welcome home. A good gebenched yard to one and all. Thank you, Rabbi Spiro, for your tremendous words, powerful words, powerful story. 
So we want to remind everyone to, sh- to share this link right now. You can watch right now at tornytime.com slash live, tornytime.com slash C-H-A-Z-A-Q-L-I-V-E, tornytime.com slash live. We want to... To everyone, if anyone doesn't have internet, you know someone doesn't have internet and they want, and they want to join in on this program, they can call in it right now at 718-298-2077, extension 46, 718-298-2077, extension 46. It's a great, great honor to call upon our dear friend Rabbi Yoshua Zitron, for, for who's, who does so much, who makes so many amazing Shurim clips, does so much for Klai Yisrael, Rabbi Yoshua Zitron. I'd like to share with you a story that happened quite a few years ago in Eretz Yisrael. They were two very close friends, Avi and David. They grew up together. They went to the same yeshivas together. They even got married at the same time. They even ended up living in the same area. As time goes by, they each had a boy. When the boys came about, to about five years old, they decided that they're going to send it to a certain yeshiva. And instead of you know, each one driving back and forth, they decided, let's do carpool. They live in the same area. They went to the same yeshiva, so they started doing carpool. When David went and gave, did the carpool, he made sure that the door that was facing the street would be on childproof lock, that the children wouldn't be able to go out. Avi, on the other hand, did not fix this childproof door. So one day, as the mother of one of the children calls this Black Monday, one day the, Avi is driving the kids to school, and uh, he doesn't childproof the, lo- the, the, lock that goes, the door that goes to the street, and the boy, David's boy, opens up the door to the street and goes out to the street. Rahman al-Assan, a car comes speeding by, hits the boy, the boy goes flying 20 feet into the air, and unfortunately he doesn't make it. Everybody's beside themselves. David, of course, the father, the parents are beside themselves, but even Abi, the guy who was driving the car, he's like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to deal? How am I supposed to see my friend in the face anymore after this? And he couldn't even, he went to the, he went to the funeral, and then he was like, how am I going to go and pay a shiva call? Finally decided, a few days go by, he says, I have to see my friend, I have to see, I have to pay a shiva call. He goes over to the shiva house, and the mother who was saying over the story said, we weren't sure where the friendship was going. But one thing we knew for sure is that after Avi left the shiva house, we knew this friendship was done. It was over. There was nothing to talk about. And the time, as time goes by, they decide, the Avi said, you know, like, let me try to make it up. Let me try to go and ask forgiveness. And he kept on coming back to David. And David came to the point, after weeks and weeks of him coming, he says, listen, Avi, I can't see you anymore. Every time I see you, it reminds me of what happened. I can't, I need to you to stop coming to me. I need, I, I can't, we cannot go past this. And he decides, furthermore, I can't even live in this town anymore. He's moving into a different town. And he gets up and he moves into, he really does. A month later, he moves to a different town. And they start the life anew, David and his wife. They have more kids. Time goes by. Many, many years go by. Until one day, David's at work. And he passes out. He, fa- he faints on the floor. They rush, they call Hatala, they rush into the hospital. It turns out that he has advanced kidney disease. And he needed to go immediately on dialysis. He goes on dialysis for a few months Things are going so-so until the doctor one day calls him and him and his wife. And he says, that, you know, David, I don't know how to tell this to you. He says, but if you don't get a transplant within a few short months, he says, you're not going to make it. Your kidney is up to a point where it's kidney failure. You need a transplant immediately. He says, I'm going to put you on a list, but there's a problem. You have a very rare blood type. So we're going to try whatever the best that we could, and we're going to put you on a list. I just want to let you know this is where we're holding. When the wife heard this, she comes home. She's like, are you serious? She's, a few years ago, she lost her child. She says, now she's going to lose her husband. 
She opens up the Tehillim and she starts crying and crying and crying. She finishes the Tehillim three times. Till she didn't know what to do with herself anymore. She decides she's going over to, uh, to her rabbi. She goes over to the rabbi. She tells the rabbi the whole story from losing her child to the car accident to Avi to Dalit, the whole thing. And the rabbi says, you keep on doing what you do. Keep on saying to Helen, let me make some phone calls to rabbis, to doctors. Let me see what I can do. About a month goes by. The hospital calls up David and he says, amazing news. We found a donor. Come immediately. They rush over to the hospital. They do the checking. Perfect match. They couldn't believe it. The transplant, Baruch Hashem, goes amazing, goes unbelievable, and life continues. Six months go by, and David one, one day goes over to his wife's office and says, we need to talk. And the wife sees him, she's white as a ghost. And she's like, oh no, please don't tell me it's the kidney again. And he's like, no, no, no. He says, but, but we need to talk. She's like, yeah, well, what's going on? So, he, so David goes and says, you know, six months ago, when I was literally almost on my deathbed, I was, you know, doing a cheshben and nefesh, thinking about life, and I was thinking about my friend, you know, Avi, and how he left things off, and I said, you know, maybe we should, you know, try to, you know, like, make things right. And I decided today I'm going to call a mutual friend to see how he's doing. So I called this mutual friend, and this mutual friend didn't know that I had any kidney problems. And I called this mutual friend, and I said, you know, how is Avi doing? How is, uh, how is everything going in the family? And he's like, the friend goes, says, you know, he's doing okay after the surgery, and... David's like, wait a minute, what surgery? He's like, oh, so it must be that he had some sort of issue, uh, you know, he couldn't move past what happened to your, to your you know, son, and he felt he had to do something for, I guess, the world. So he went and he donated a kidney. And instantly, David, who was holding the phone, dropped the phone, turned white as a ghost. He picks up the phone, and he says, uh, I got to okay, thank you so much, I got to go. He runs over to his wife, and he says, I know, I could feel it. This is Avi's kidney. He gave me the kidney. I could feel it. And she's like, what? And she was like going all, she was like, couldn't even like put piece things together until she's like, wait a minute. They both rush over to the rabbi and they tell the rabbi what's going on. And the rabbi goes and says, you know, I have to tell you something. He says, when you guys moved into this town, your friend Avi reached out to me and he told me the whole story already. I knew the whole story. And he says, please, I want to make things better. Please, whatever it is that I can do, let me, you know, see if you could make shalom, make, do something. And the rabbi said, throughout the years, I saw there was never a right time. Until a time came where your husband didn't have that much left to live. And I said, if <laughs> I'm not going to do it now, then when? So he calls up Avi and he tells him the whole situation. And there was a long pause on the other line. And Avi says, I'm going to give him my kidney. And the rabbi says, you don't understand, he has a very rare blood type. You can't just give him a kidney. He's like, no, we have the same blood type. Because we were so close, we, were, you know, we took an EMT course together. And then we went and we drew our blood together. And we knew we were a perfect match. And the rabbi says, he says, that's amazing, that's great. But Abi says, I have one condition. He says, he can never know that the kidney is coming from me. Because if he finds out that the kidney comes from me, he's not going to take it. So the rabbi says, fine. They call an organization. They start arranging things. They did the test. And as you know, it was a perfect match. And it was indeed, you know, Abi's kidney. And David goes over to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, can you do me a favor? Can you set up a meeting with us? And he says, yeah, sure. They set up a meeting the next day. They met in a hotel lobby. David is sitting there with his wife. When Avi walks in, and David and Avi's eyes lock, 
all of a sudden their, tear, their eyes swell up with tears and they run over to each other and they start embracing each other and crying on each other's shoulders. Each one apologizing, obviously saying, I'm so sorry, I don't know what happened. I can't, I can't even begin to apologize for what I did, I'm so sorry. And David's like, it's not your fault, I shouldn't have acted the way that I acted and they both started apologizing and crying. Now when two men are sitting over there crying and their wife is sitting over there, <laughs> they also started crying. And there's a beautiful, beautiful reunion that happened between these two friends. Weeks go by, and they rekindle the friendship. And one day, Avi goes over to David, and he goes and he tells him, he says, I wanted to tell you something. He says, I want you to know that even if whatever happened with your son, with my fault, that, that whole story, even if that never would have happened, I would have still given you a kidney. He says, you want to know why? Because you're like a brother to me. And no matter what happens, I am always going to be there for you. Look at the beautiful Jewish nation. Look at what it is. There's so much good that goes on. There's so much that we have to go and, and we have the ability to do for other people. And I'm not saying everyone has to go and give kidneys. It's good if you're able to. But there's so much power that can come from so much good that's deep inside each and every single one of us. So maybe try to take a minute to think about what is one chesed that you could do today. Baruch Hashem, it's finally here, the new Torah Anytime app. It's a revolutionary, game-changing app that has so many incredible features and enhancements. It's available right now on the iPhone App Store or an Android Play Store. And don't just get it for yourself. Get everyone you know to get the new Torah Anytime app as well. Thank you, Rabbi Zetron, for your tremendous words. We want to remind everyone to continue watching this amazing program to the end. One speaker after another. We're really going to be prepared and inspired for the Yom Noraim, the high holidays right around the corner. It's a great, great honor to call upon Rabbi Ephraim Epstein. For, as we know, the, the, the rabbi has authored an amazing savior called Davening Divine. If you want to uplift your tefillahs, especially right now, we're about to hear Yom Noraim. And just, just your weekday tefillahs, we know. You should go out and purchase online or at your local Jacob store, Davening Divine. It will really enhance your, your prayers, your davening. It's a quiet article by Rabbi Ephraim Epstein. It's El again. The same with David Hashem Ori. The same chauffeur blasts. The Svartim are getting up nice and early. Or davening Bechatzos. As we prepare for the holy Yamim Noraim. Thank you to Stories to Inspire and to Project Chazak for inviting me to share a story at this holy time. I'm reminded of almost 10 years ago. A family simcha brought us to Chicago driving from New Jersey. Anyone who's had that Nisayon knows that two Arabic numerals stand in front of your eyes. Route 80. It's one long drive on Route 80. And if you could press you know, your Tesla in auto drive, you can go to sleep for about 11 hours and get there. But you can't. I couldn't. So it's on the way back, and the amazing thing about the trip on Route 80 is for about 100 miles or more, maybe 300, it looks exactly the same. 
the scenery is the same. Even the rest stops are the same. They're made identical, right? The shops and the restrooms and the maps, they're all in the exact same space. So on the way back from Chicago, we left in the evening, so we do an overnighter to get the kids to sleep. Remember that. And after about two hours... We decided we're going to stop for Myriv, we're going to go out, we'll eat something. And we get out of the car, and my eldest son at that time had a great hobby. He wanted to collect pictures of every single license plate state in the nation of the United States. And we got out of the car, and he noticed, OMG, Oklahoma! He didn't have Oklahoma. Well, you don't just start taking pictures of people's license plates in the 21st century. So I knocked on the window and I said, forgive me, sir. My son here happens to have a hobby of collecting license plate uh, pictures. Do you mind if we take a picture? He thought about it for a minute. He was wondering whether or not we were Middle Eastern terrorists or uh, undercover FBI agents and said, you know what? Sure, take a picture. We said, thank you very much. We went in, Davin Mariv, ate dinner, used the rooms, got back in the car, and went on our way, Shalom Yisrael. And the kids all fall asleep. Because that's what you do at 10 p.m. on an all-night trip. About 1 a.m. or... 12 a.m., it's time to make another stop. Somebody needs to use the room in the rest stop. We get out of the car, and lo and behold, the guy parked next to me are the same people from Oklahoma. They gave me one look, got very scared, and drove away. We went in. We used the same facilities in the same part. We bought the same. We went to... Everything was exactly the same. We got back in the car, about to pull away, and one of the kids in the back wakes up, looks around, looks at her watch, and says, It's three hours! We haven't moved in three hours! Because it looked exactly the same as the previous rest stop. My dear friends, that's what we don't want to feel like on Rosh Hashanah. Too many people get their new suit or their new tie. They sit down in the same bought seat, listen to the same chazan, and they're right back where they were one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, 30 years ago. Question is... How have we changed? How has the world changed? How do we need to change? Built into the word Rosh Hashanah, the word Shana can mean going over again, or it can mean Lushanot, to change. Rosh Hashanah is the time to change. Change is hard. When we change, we lose familiarity with what we had. But we need to work on ourselves and make sure that we do not end up 
in the exact same place as we were a year ago and many years ago. A good gesundheit, and may we all change for the better. Thank you, Rabbi Epstein, for your tremendously powerful, 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 and educational stories and, and lesson. We want to, we want to, we want to, we want to introduce our next speaker, Rabbi Mordechai Berg, who's the Manal of Mevaseret Sion in Israel, and the author of of Nitzotzos, and is our great grand to call upon Rabbi Berg. A beautiful marshal is told about a king who had an exceptionally beautiful crown jewel. The crown, of course, is the seat of power of the king, and the crown jewel is what made this crown so exceptional. One day the king leaned over, his crown tumbled off of his head, and the crown jewel split in half. The king, of course, was mortified, he was terrified. Without the crown jewel, without the crown, in some way there would be a diminution of his kavod and therefore of his power. And so the king put out a kolkore, pashkavilim, all over the land, all over the world. Anyone who could come and fix this jewel, ad malchus, and the king would give them whatever they wanted. Jewelers came from everywhere to try to fix this jewel, and of course, none were successful. Once a jewel is broken, it's broken. There's nothing you could do about it. Until, like in every great marshal, one old Jew came, and he said to the king, I can fix your crown. I can fix your crown jewel. On one condition, you may not ask any questions. The king reluctantly said yes. He had no choice. This was his last resort. Without the crown jewel, what good was it to be a king? And so this jeweler took out his implements, and he started to shave away at the jewel itself. Shards began flying everywhere. And the king was horrified, and he screamed out, You're ruining my jewel! The old jeweler turned to him and said, We had one condition. You're not allowed to say anything. At this point, it was too late. There was nothing the king could do anyway. And so he watched in terror as this jeweler began to create etchings more and more into the stone, shards again flying everywhere. And the king has realized, it's over. There's nothing left for me to do. My, my jewel is destroyed. I'm certainly not going to have any power after this. Hours later, the jeweler gets up, sweat pouring from his brow. And with a smile, he turns to the king and he says, I fixed it. The king is overjoyed. He says, let me see the jewel. And the jeweler hands him the jewel, and the king sees that it indeed is more beautiful than it had been before. But the crack is not fixed. What the jeweler had done is he had taken the crack that was right down the middle of the jewel, and he etched in roots, and he etched in branches and leaves, and he made what was a crack into the trunk of the tree itself. You see, sometimes we look at our flaws and we say, it's over, it's broken. What could it possibly mean to heal me? How could this crack in my life, in my story, in myself, in my neshama, how could it possibly be rectified? And we know that. And there's a certain fright that we have that this is it, it's all over. There's nothing left for us to do. And the truth of the matter is, it's just the opposite. It's the cracks that let in the light. If we would look at our flaws, and we would recognize we are human beings. We're just human beings. HaKadosh Baruch Hu always knew that we were mortal and that we were going to make mistakes. But there's an opportunity to use those mistakes to come closer to Hashem, to build something more beautiful, a newer picture, something that had never been seen before. 
the biggest mistake that we make is that we're ashamed of our Averos. We feel, because of the Averos that we've done, that we're unworthy of love and connection. And it's really just the opposite. We're being called upon to take our mistakes, and like Chazal say, if we do tshuva me'ava, they're nasla k'schuyos. Not only are they no longer Averos, but they become merits for us. What does it mean that they become merits? Aren't they Averos? The answer is we can transform our Averos, just like that jeweler transformed that crack into a beautiful tree. By using our Averos as an opportunity to come closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we see that indeed they were the springboard for a newer and closer relationship than we ever had before. This Elul, this period of Yamim Noraim, let's use the opportunity to take the cracks in our lives and to allow in the light. Thank you, Rabbi Berg, for your tremendously powerful and inspiring message. A great, it's our great grand honor to call upon our dear friend, Rabbi Mordechai Kalatsky, who's a Rav at Knesset, Israel, Minnesota. And it's a great grand honor, um, and it's a pleasure to call upon Rabbi Kalatsky. Sroka Zimmerman, he lived in Poland, and he was a very capable person. But he didn't have any money. His wife wasn't feeling well. His daughter needed to get married. He could have put food on the table. It was in Europe. Srilik Zimmerman lived in Poland a couple hundred years ago. And he was very capable, but he didn't have any money, like many people in those days. His wife was sick, his daughter needed to get married, his children needed food. He decided he's going to go to Baron Rothschild. And he's going to ask him for 3,000 gold coins to start a business and to finally be able to live the way he wanted to live. Have everything he needs, take care of his family. Took him six months between walking, hitching rides. He was so poor. Gets to England, gets to the castle, knocks on the door, the butler opens the door, and the butler sees that he needs tzedakah. He gives him a gold coin. He says, you know, I need, I need to speak to the baron. He's like, no, here's two gold coins. He says, I need 3,000 gold coins. He goes, for that? You need to speak to the baron. He goes, that's why I'm here. Bala says, you can't just speak to the baron. It takes months. And even the biggest bankers don't have the ability. And he starts crying and crying. And it brings out compassion and mercy in the butler. And the butler said, listen, every Friday from 1 to 105, the baron crosses the grounds to go to the mikvah try your luck then, maybe he'll be able to help you. So he was so excited. It was Wednesday afternoon. He went to the shul. He sat down. He just started saying, till him Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Came one o'clock on Friday and he sees the baron crossing the grounds. He runs over. He falls to the floor. He says, please help me. My wife is sick. My daughter needs to get married. My children need food. I'm so capable. I just need a loan. Can you please help me? Can you help me get me on my feet? There was something about him there was a chain. The man said, you know, why don't you spend Shabbos with me? And we'll talk after Shabbos. They spent Shabbos together. They had a tremendous time. He was such an impressive person. After Shabbos, the Baron sits down with him. He says, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm going to give you the 3,000 gold coins. He didn't know what to say, and then he hands them a letter. And he says, what's this? And the Baron says, listen, most people, when they start their first company, they get taken, they lose, they don't invest right. Took you six months here, six months back. It's going to take you a year. 
Here's a letter. If you lose all the money, I'll send you another 3,000 gold coins. He is overjoyed. He goes back to the town. It's literally the greatest yuntif. Everyone is so excited and so happy. And then there was someone else in the town, a professional stucco collector. He's like, the baron's giving out 3,000 gold coins? I gotta go to England. He goes to England. And he's like, he gets there on a Wednesday. He knows Friday, 1 o'clock to 1.05, he crosses the grounds of the baron. And this professional stucco collector says, you know, my friend, he sat on the shoulder and said, tell him all day, he goes, there's lots of wealthy Jews, many castles. I'm going to make the rounds. I'll make 50 to 100 gold coins. I'll come back with 3,100 gold coins. And that's what he does. One o'clock on Friday, the baron crosses the grounds. And this kid runs, he falls off. He says, please, my wife is sick and my daughter needs to get married and my children need food on the table. And the baron gives him five gold coins. He says, no, please, please, please. And he gives him 10 gold coins. He says, no, please. And he gives him 15 gold coins. And he says, it's not happening. He looked at the baron and he said, I don't understand. My friend was here a couple months ago. He gave him 3,000 gold coins. How come you're only giving me a couple? And the baron looked at him and he said, Your friend? His life depended on me. I'm going to turn away someone whose life, whose wife, whose kids, whose daughter depends on me? He goes, You? You've already made your rounds to all the castles. I've heard about you. I'm your largest donor. Rosh Hashanah is coming. We're going to coronate the king of the universe. And we're going to go to Hashem and say, Please, Hashem, we need you. We need health. We need gesund. We need people to get married. We need children. We need parnasa. We need learning. We need everything. We want it all. And the more we realize that Hashem is the only source there's a shtalus to make to go to people, but it all comes from Hashem. The more we realize that the only source is Hashem, then if Baron Rothschild, his heart opened up to help someone who knew this depended on him, then a million times more, a trillion times more, how much more Hashem will shower us with bracha, hatzlacha, and aksiva in every way when we turn to them and say, Hashem, you are our king, you are the ones we rely on. Amen. Baruch Hashem, it's finally here, the new Torah Anytime app. It's a revolutionary, game-changing app that has so many incredible features and enhancements. It's available right now on the iPhone App Store or an Android Play Store. And don't just get it for yourself. Get everyone you know to get the new Torah Anytime app as well. Rabbi Kalatsky for your great, great message. When I remind everyone, we're continuing strong right now. The Yom Norayim. Stories to inspire event. We want to we want to thank everyone for joining us and continuing to join us. And please share this link right now. It, you and your friends and family and relatives can really be inspired by this amazing program at torrentytime.com/slash/live torrentytime.com/slash/chazaqlive. Um, if anyone doesn't have internet or you know someone who doesn't have internet and wants to call into this program, they can call in right now 718-298-2077 extension forty six seven one eight two nine eight. 2077, extension 46. Wanna, I remind everyone to save the date Sunday, September 19th at 8 p.m. in your, in, in your time zone. We're going to be having the next uh, Stories to Inspire events. It's going to be a Sukkot Stories to Inspire, as we know, the Sunday before every Jewish holiday, um, Yom Tov Chag. We're going to be having this amazing Stories to Inspire event to really enhance, enhance our our, our knowledge and, and thought process while, while, before we go into these great um, Yom Tovim. And we want to thank, um, and it's our great, great honor to call upon Rabbi Shlomo Landau, 
director of Torah Links in New Jersey, as well as he as well as, uh, as well as he has come out recently with a podcast, a tremendous podcast called Soul Stories with Kola Tarakula. Check that out. Soul Stories. It's a great, great article upon Rabbi Landau. I wanted to begin by taking this opportunity to thank all the amazing sponsoring organizations that put together these series of inspirational stories. I personally feel that an inspirational story does so much more than anything else. It gets right into your heart and even into your neshama, and it just wants to make you a better person and be more connected to Hashem. I'm grateful to be a small part of this incredible initiative. I want to share a beautiful personal story as we stand on the cusp of Yom Kippur, of the incredible Yom HaGadol, this awesome day. And I want to share something that happened to me a long time ago. Almost two decades ago, I had this chus and the merit to start being a high school rebbe in a number of different yeshivas. And it happened that one year, I had a boy in my class. I'd only taught him for a few weeks. But I right away saw that he was so negative about Yiddishkeit. He was so jaded when it came to Judaism. He, some, for some reason, must have had a negative experience with Hashem. I don't know, with Yiddishkeit, with something. And he just was so, so negative. He was toxic to have in an environment where people were trying to grow in their Yiddishkeit. With that being said, he was a sweet boy. And as a Rebbe, I tried to form a personal Kesher that goes, that goes above and beyond anything to do with religion. It's just one Yiddish person loving another Yiddish person. And he reacted in kind. And we developed a nice relationship in just those few weeks. And I remember during Asteris Yumei Tshuva, I went over to him and I said to him, Yom Kippur must be so difficult for you. And he said to me, you have no idea how difficult Yom Kippur is. He shared that he belongs to a shul where there's a lot of Bali tshuva. His parents were newish to Judaism. They took him along for the ride. He wasn't feeling it. And that Yom Kippur davening in the shul that he went to almost was the entire day. Couple that on top of having to fast. He dreaded Yom Kippur more than any day in the entire year. I sympathized with him. I empathized. I could understand where he's coming from. So I said to him, do you think you could find it within your heart? You could find it within your soul? once on Yom Kippur for maybe five minutes just to daven to tell Hashem what's on your mind to tell Him what's on your heart and He looks at me and He adamantly says no way there's no way I'm davening to Hashem I want nothing to do with Him then I said to Him I don't know why but I said to Him I'd like to ask you for a personal favor I'm going through a lot of things in my own personal life in my communal life as a rabbi as a teacher in my own family and I really need help with a lot of things do you think that maybe one time throughout Yom Kippur you could say Avinu Malkeinu? But when you say Avinu Malkeinu, Kasveinu Besefer Chayim Toivim, write us in the book of life, give us health, give us wealth, give us safety, give us so many things. I don't want you to think about yourself because you don't want to daven Hashem. Think about me. Please, that would be so meaningful to me. I'd so appreciate that. And he thought for a moment and he says to me, What's in it for me? So I said to him, here is the deal. I will be maktish. I will sanctify. I'll consecrate one of my avinu malkenus on Yom Kippur by davening. And I won't daven for myself. And I won't daven for my family. And I won't daven for my community. And I won't daven for Kalal Yisrael. I'll daven just for you. When I say, Kasveinu besefer chaim toivim, write us in the book of good life, I'll have just you in mind. Give us wealth. Give us parnasa. Give us peace. All those different things. Give us salvation. I'm only going to think about you. And he thinks for a minute. He goes, that's a good deal. I agree. 
I'm doing myself, I just gave away one of my Avinu Malkenus. Okay. Yom Kippur goes through and I didn't forget. I took one of the tefillahs, one of the Avinu Malkenus, and literally line by line, I thought about this boy, I thought about this boy, I thought about this boy. The day after Yom Kippur, I come to school. We had school the day after Yom Kippur. And standing there on the front steps of the school building is this boy. And he's waiting with bated breath. And he comes running down the stairs and he says to me, Rabbi, I did my part. Did you do yours? And I said, of course I did. It was a deal. He goes, okay, Rabbi, I really prayed for you. And I said to him, Sadik, I really prayed for you as well. And I'm telling you that that year, a lot of the issues I was dealing with at the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, went away almost magically. And I think it was the power of the pureness of this boy's tefillah. And I'm hopeful that he had a good year as well. Because hopefully there was some power and some purity to my tefillah as well. And I think this is such a pivotal mind shift when it comes to Yom Kippur. We can't just daven for ourselves. We need to daven for other people as well. Because I'll teach us, if you daven for your friend, and you need the same thing that you're praying for your friend. You're answered first. So it's a slam dunk anyways. Which leads me to the second layer of this story. Every year in my Kirov shul, my outreach shul, perhaps one of the highlights of the entire year is my speech before Yisker. Yisker is very, very packed. Hundreds and hundreds of people who don't come to anything a whole year, for some reason, they come to Yisker. And the rabbi's speech before Yisker is the one opportunity to try to get through to them, to try to somehow awaken them and inspire them to do something more than just that annual appearance at shul. And a friend of mine shared this idea that he'd done in his shul, and I did it, and it was off the charts. I shared, I spoke about this concept of davening for other people and how it brings us personal salvation even quicker. And I shared a bunch of amazing stories about this concept. Baruch Hashem, I was very successful. And then I asked every single person in the entire room to stand up, to go over to the person next to them, even if they never met them before, and to ask them, introduce themselves, and to ask them for one thing that they really, really need, something so important to them that they could dive and they could pray on their behalf. And after I did that, there was a great buzz in the room when that happened. I asked everybody <clears throat> for 60 seconds of absolute silence where each of us would close our eyes and we would dive in solely for the person next to us. And the results were not even able to be described. People were hugging one another, crying. There was such an incredible ace rest, and it was such a moment, such an auspicious moment. But while this was all happening, and people were talking to one another, trying to figure out what they could daven for, I all of a sudden realized that everyone is standing next to somebody else besides me. I'm the lonely rabbi at the front, at the podium, speaking to everybody. And I looked around the shul, and I noticed that on the women's side, on the front row, there was an old woman, and she was standing all by herself, and no one was talking to her. So I walked over to her, and I said, we're all davening for someone else. Could I dive on your behalf? And she says to me, I not speak English. I said to her, since she was a Russian Jewish woman, I said to her, maybe Yiddish? She goes, yeah, yeah, I speak Yiddish. I said in Yiddish. Maybe there's something I could daven on your behalf. And she thinks for a moment, and all of a sudden she gets all misty-eyed. I'll never forget this. And she looks at me, she says, Daven! Pray that my grandchildren, my descendants, should remain Jewish. I said, 
Of course, I'm going to pray. And I remember when everyone else closed their eyes, I did mine, and I said, Rabbeinah Shalalem. This woman, could, she was not a young woman. She didn't look so well. She could have davened for arichas yamim, for longevity. She could have davened for health. She could have davened for parnasa, for livelihood. There were so many things. But she just wanted one thing from the Rabbinah Shalalim, that her children, her grandchildren, should remain Jewish. They should somehow realize the incredible gift of being a Jewish person. And I davened on her behalf. And in many stories, it would say her children and her grandchildren all became tremendous balei tshuva and they turned out to Yiddishkeit. I can't say that. I don't know who the woman is and I don't know what happened. But I do know that in our room, there was such a beautiful and amazing energy. And I think this is a challenge to each and every one of us. That at one point on Yom Kippur, we need to take a step back, figuratively, and we need to say that the next tefillah that I'm going to daven, the next plea that I'm going to utter, the next bakasha, the next request from the Banshlam, is going to be for somebody else. Because I think if we do that, there could be amazing results. Each and every one of us should have a gmar chasimataiva and a good kebench de yar. And the Rabbanu Shalom should answer all our tefillahs for other people. And in the process, also answer the tefillahs on our behalf. Rabbi Landau, for your tremendous words. It's a great, great honor to call upon Rabbi, Rabbi Avram Stuhlberger, who's the dean of the Valley Torah High School as well as the president of Yeshiva Principles Council of Los Angeles. And he's just so much tremendous work for Klai Yisra, dedicates his life for Klai Yisra. It's a great honor to go upon Rabbi Stuhlberger. I want to thank Stories to Inspire, Torah Anytime, for uh, the special program of preparing for Yom Neroim. And Be'ez Hashem, all the people involved should just go mechayil, chayil, b'yizchus for them and for all of Klai Yisra to Be'ez Hashem, b'yizach the good gebenched yar. The year was 1929, the night of Rosh Hashanah, fast approaching. It was 40 days after a devastating, unimaginable tragedy of the Arabs, who attacked Hebron, who attacked Yeshiv in Hebron, killing 24 Tamidim, part of even a greater tragedy of some 50, 60 people being killed in a, in a program that took place 40 days before Shoshanah. Yeshiva had moved. Yeshiva was in Rechov Hanaviyim. Still reeling. The Tamidim, Yechaveyim are lost. You don't know what to say. and You don't know what to do. There's an emptiness feeling inside. I've lost so much. How do I get ready for Shoshanah? And the great Mashkir, Urbleib Chasmin, was looking around the base Medrash, who is going to Davin Meir of tonight? The new year, a year that Bez Hashem will beckon a positive, a positive fate for, for these survivors. And he went around the room, and he went over to a 17-year-old boy, a young man who typically would never be asked to Davin for the Yomad of the Chevron Yeshiva and the Lel Rosh Hashanah. His name was Bitzalel Shakovitsky. He went over to Bitzal Shakovitsky and he said, Please dive my for us. The young man was shocked. Me? I'm going to dive my Rebbe, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. I'm not capable. He says, You need to dive my for us. He went up to the Yomid. Of course, in the classical Rosh Hashanah Nigan, he said, Baruchu. You can feel the difference. You can feel the air. It, they answered Baruch Hu. It wasn't the same. They went to the first bracha. The second bracha, 
as Bitzal Sakovitsky was with his beautiful, sweet voice, a voice that I certainly cannot in any way compare to. But when he said the words, When he said those words, the story, as many eyewitnesses were there, everybody connected to those words. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not let your love leave us. They all joined. And then he paused. And again, He said it again, and again, and again. He repeated those words. I'm not saying it's halachically advisable, but he said those words again and again. And the Tzibur said it with him again and again and again. And the people who were there, the many people who were part of that meeting said, the neshama of the Chevron Yeshiva came back that night, Rechov Hanavim, displaced from their Yeshiva, not to go back to Chevron, they found another place in, a, in Yerushalayim. And it sort of struck me, what an incredible, powerful story of a 17-year-old boy who was able to tap into the emotions, the feelings, the, the sadness, and the depth of, of the almost inability to respond emotionally to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When he said those words, Vavoscha, Tosim, Emenu was it repeated 20 times, 25 times, people lost count. But that allowed the emotions to break through. It allowed Klai Yisrael, that particular special group, how devastated they were, how, how forlorn they felt. But they heard those words, they connected to those words, Vavoscha, please, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, don't let your love leave us. We want to be connected to you. That changed not only that Rosh Hashanah for that group of special young men, but it changed the whole course of the yeshiva. The yeshiva, the Cheren yeshiva became, we know, such a vital force in Talmud Torah and Torah leadership in Klai Yisrael. The words of, of Mishlei, T'nob b'ni libchali, how at the end of the day, what Rosh Hashanah is about, what Yom Naram is about, it's about our heart. It's about our relation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Where are we? We too are reeling. Cannot compare tragedies. Now It's not possible to even put them into, into perspective. Every, every tragedy has its own unique dynamic. But Klai Yisrael has been through a lot. We've seen so much from Tovshin Pei to Tovshin Pei Aleph, Tovshin Pei Aleph to Tovshin Pei Beis. As we, Mezer Shem, are starting a new year, which we hope will only bring us Yeshuas and Nechamois and Brachas and Atzlachah. We've seen a lot. We've been through a lot. And it's possible with all of the tragedies and all of the quarantines and all the isolation and all the difficult situations that we've been put in collectively and individually, loved ones, family members, it is possible that we too might have a tough time drawing down into the depths of our emotions, but we have to do that. Chevron changed because of emotions. Gemara says that Rabbi Lazar brought all of the Klai together. There was a famine. There was no food. There was no water. And they prayed. They went through all the tefillos, and the tefillos, Akash did not respond. 
And finally, Rebbe says to them, prepare your graves. There is no next step. Prepare your graves. This, we are at the end of the road. We have nothing left to look forward to than coming into the Olam Emes. And the Gemara says at that point, they broke down in tears. And those tears broke through. And those tears reached Shemayim, and those tears brought the rains. The tears that came down the cheeks of Klai Yisrael brought the, the, rain from the, the rains from the clouds that gave bracha and gave sustenance to Klai Yisrael, and the Torah ended. At the end of the day, it's about relationship. It's about anil dodi vidodi li. It's about allowing somehow that, yes, there are layers and layers that are covering the, the emotions right now, that maybe we are somewhat chasashom deadened to the deep connection we have to feel to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but our job is to crack through. Will we have at our particular place where we daven, will we have a Betzal Sakovitsky to open up our hearts? Maybe. Halavai. But even if we don't, we have to do it ourselves. We have to draw deep into whether it's Vavoscha, Tosim, and those words that are obviously so powerful. Throughout the davening, so many different moments where we are coming to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, yearning for HaKadosh Baruch Hu and us, and us individually and us collectively. To reconnect. Tanov b'ni libchali, HaKadosh Baruch Hu begs us, says Shlomo Melech, give me your heart. I want your heart. And that's what we have to deliver. Come this Rosh Hashanah. Come this Yom Nirayim. Come this incredible day of Yom Kippur. With these days, we have to be totally in, emotionally, Bez Hashem, totally in. That is what changed the destiny of the Jews back in the time of the Gemara, Bilazar Gadol, the great Bilazar. The tears. It wasn't even words in the Gemara. They just go They just broke down in tears without even words. Brother Hashem, let us use the words of davening. Let us use the challenges that we have faced this year and in recent times to turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the only Yeshua, the only Melech, Malchi Ablachim, who can, who can change our destiny and change our future and change our situation and, affect, and affect the Yeshuas and the Chamas that we are so longing for. Bez Hashem, let's give HaKadosh Baruch Hu a heart. Let us open up our hearts. Vavoscha, trosim, emenul, yelamim. Bez Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will look into our hearts as he's longing to. He wants to find that connection. He wants to feel that connection, Bez Hashem. It should be an individual connection, a collective collection of Christ, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Bez Hashem, Bezocha, to Ishnaz Gula, Yeshua, Ishnaz Bracha, Vatzocha, Bez Hashem, and only Simchis, when the end of all tragedies, end of all tsaras, Bez Hashem, with Biyas HaMashach, Baruch Hashem, it's finally here, the new Torah Anytime app. It's a revolutionary, game-changing app that has so many incredible features and enhancements. It's available right now on the iPhone App Store or an Android Play Store. And don't just get it for yourself. Get everyone you know to get the new Torah Anytime app as well. Thank you, Alex Stuhlberger, for your tremendous words. It's a great, great honor to call upon Rabbi Daniel Staum. Who, 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 who inspires us. His articles literally go in tens of papers every single week, inspiring thousands upon thousands of people. And that's in addition to all his short clips, sure, and that he gives online on Torah Anytime. It's a great, great honor to call upon Rabbi Daniel Stam. I'd like to thank Torah Anytime, Chazak, Stories to Inspire, and Kola Torah Kula for giving me this opportunity to share with you what hopefully will be an inspirational thought as we come to Rosh Hashanah. In March 2006, 
the Torah world was gearing up with excitement for the 11th Siyam Ashas, before MetLife. The Siyam Ashas was to be held, it was the biggest ever at the time, it was to be held at Madison Square Garden, with a link up to Nassau Coliseum and many other places throughout the world, including the Javits Center. It was a, could be a tremendous event. During the Siyam Ashas, so I decided to go walk around, maybe it was during one of the Yiddish speeches, and I decided to call my friend who I knew, my friend Akiva, who was there. And for some reason, even though we're both friends from Muncie, we see each other all the time, but it's a special thrill to see somebody from back home somewhere else. So I said, Akiva, where are you sitting? I'm gonna calm you down, I'm walking around. So he said, I'm sitting in section 222. I said, great, I'm coming down there in a minute to come see you. I come down to section 222, he's not outside waiting for me, so I go inside. And I said, Akiva, where are you? I'm back on the phone. I said, Akiva, where are you? I don't see you. And he says, I don't see you either. I said, I'm the guy standing there waving to the entire crowd of hundreds of people looking at me like I'm nuts. So he said, but I'm doing the same thing and I don't see you. So I went to 221. I went to 223. I said, you know, what? maybe it's 122. So I went down. Finally, I said, you know, what, Akiva, this is ridiculous. You know, I'll see you back home. That's the end of that. Then suddenly it hit me. And I said, hey, Akiva, where are you? Where in the garden are you? He said, the garden? I'm in Nassau Coliseum. The Navi Malachi, Malachim, and Sefer Malachim, Navi Elisha, tells his Talmidim, in Perak Vav Pasukutesa, Malachim Beis, Lo zehaderech velo zehoir. This is not the way, and this is not the city. Says of Shimshin Pincus, he says, when a person wants to get somewhere, there's two things you need to know. Number one is you need to know the roads to take. But number two is you need to know the destination. Even if you know all the roads, if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. So you need to know the roads to take and you need to know what the destination is. Says Rav Pincus. There is a beautiful journey, beautiful highways in the months of Elul and Tishrei. Beautiful roads with beautiful scenery. Malchios, Echonos, and Shofros. And the chauffeur, of course, and Tashlich, and Kaparis, and the Viduyim, and asking Mechila, and working on ourselves, and and then Sukkis, with the Oshanis, and the Aravis, and Dalit Minim, and the Sukkah itself, and Simchas Pesach Shoeva, and we bench Geshem, and finally culminating with the Hakafis on Simchas Torah, when we say, What a beautiful road. Cesar Pincus, it's not enough to know the road though. You have to know what the destination is. There's the Derech, and then there's the ear. Where am I going? When we set out at the beginning of Elul, and we set out just before Rosh Hashanah, we need to know what's the destination. Where do I want to go? I can have all the points correct. I can go to section 222. But if I'm in the garden, and my friends in Nassau Coliseum, we're not going to see each other. I can know the roads inside and out. I drive them every single year. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, these beautiful highways. What's my destination? Where do I want to be when it's all over? When they put the Sifrei Torah back in the Oron on Simchas Torah afternoon and close the Oron and I head back to work or to Yeshiva, where do I want to be? Who do I want to be? It's not enough to know the road. We have to know the destination. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu help us all to not only enjoy and appreciate and internalize the road, but to have that destination in mind and to be able to get there. Thank you, Rabbi Stam, for your tremendous words, for your powerful words. It's a great, great honor to introduce our next speaker, Rabbi Shmuel Reichman. It's a great, great honor. 
Um, as we know, Rabbi Reichman, his articles go in so many papers. His his le- his lectures, his clips really get really go viral. And it's a great ground to call upon Rabbi Shmuel Reichman. There's a great story about a man who wanted to be successful. So he found this amazing guru. He found this guru who was the best at what he did. And he said, I'm going to go track this guy down. So he found out where he lived, and he flew out, knocked on the guy's door, and the guy answered, and he said, can I help you? He said, yeah, I heard you were this guru, and I want to be successful. I want to be successful like you. Can you teach me the secret to success? How do I become great? So the guru looked him up and down and said, meet me tomorrow by the beach at 5.30 in the morning, and I'll tell you how to be successful. So the guy said, great. Showed up the next day in a suit. She said, more bathing suit, because when he got there, the guru said, start walking in the water. He's the guru. He listened to the guru. So he started walking in the water, got about knees deep. And he saw that the guru was following him, and he said, okay, he's going to teach me something about the water, whatever it is, I don't know. Some analogy, maybe. The guru says, keep walking. He says, okay. Keeps walking, gets about waist deep. And he turns around, and he says, can you tell me now how to be successful? And the guru says, keep walking. Okay. Keeps walking. At this point, he's thinking, maybe this guru is a little crazy. He might be successful, but he's a little crazy. But he's the guru. And he came all this way. I'm going to keep going. Gets about shoulders deep. And he's like, okay, at this point, I can't go any further. Turns around and says, okay, can you tell me how do I be successful? The guru says, keep walking. He's about to turn and say, like, are you serious? But he's thinking, like, okay, I came all this way. The guru probably has his special lesson he wants to teach me, so I'll keep walking. He keeps walking, he gets, at this point, it's like chin deep, he's about to get to his mouth, but he's about to turn around when he feels the guru shove his head underneath the water. And he's struggling, he's trying to pull the guru's hand off of his head, he can't pull the guy's hand off, and he's struggling to breathe, and he's thinking, oh my gosh, I came here, I'm gonna die. This guru really is crazy. He's struggling. He can't breathe and he's about to pass out. And just before he, just before he's about to lose consciousness, the guru pulls his head from underneath the water. And the guru tells him something he'll never forget. He says, when you were just underneath the water, what did you want most? Wanted to breathe. That's all I wanted. All I wanted was to breathe. And the guru said, when you want to succeed as much as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. When you want to succeed. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. Rosh Hashanah is about wanting, it's about deciding. Because... If you actually think about it, we think of Rosh Hashanah as when Hashem created the world. But the Gemara says that there is an opinion that Hashem created the world in Nisan. So what's the solution to this problem? Did Hashem create the world in Rosh Hashanah or Nisan? So Toso says that Hashem decided. Hashem decided it was the want, it was the rutzen, it was the decision, will. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. Hashem decided to create the world in Rosh Hashanah, but he actually created Nisan. Rosh Hashanah is all about inception. It's about the root. It's about deciding. And so much of life is about deciding who we want to be, who we're going to be, what we're going to create with our life. 
And if we think about teshuva, teshuva is about becoming who we're meant to be. The Maharal says teshuva is returning to our root self, to our ultimate self, to our true self. But the Ramchal says, how do you do that? What's real teshuva? It's akiras haratzon. It's changing what we want. It's the decision to want more. It's when we decide what we're going to be, who we're going to be, how we're going to do it. The actions will come afterwards. The actual steps, the growth, the pain, the process, that's the next step. But Rosh Hashanah is all about deciding. It's about rooting yourself within reality. It's saying, who do I want to be? And the power of Ratzon, the power of will, of decision, it has halachic significance. We find the Gemara Kedushin, the Mem Tess. It says that if someone says, I'll marry you on condition that I'm a tzaddik, you have to be choshish. You have to view that with halachic significance. It might, it might be chal. It might be a good marriage. But the Gemara says, even if he's not a tzaddik? And the Gemara says, yeah. Why? Because we're afraid that maybe he had herhuri teshuva. Maybe at the point when he was creating that kedushin, maybe he did teshuva and became a tzaddik. But he didn't fulfill the teshuva. He didn't do it. But he decided. It's about who you want to be. That's the root of teshuva. That's the root. The saying halachas acknowledges where you want to be. As a matter of fact, there's Mishnah in Ervin, which talks about the halacha of when you leave a city on Shabbos, you can only walk 2,000 amas. So let's say you're outside the city and it's Erev Shabbos. So you're only going to have 2,000 amas to walk. But let's say it's right before Shabbos and you say, I want to be there. And you point to a place in the distance. Halacha recognizes where you want to be, where you decide you're going to be. Oh, but you're not there yet. You're still here. You're only walking. You're not there yet. But you decided you want to be there. You can decide where you want to be. You can decide who you're going to be. And once you make that decision, everything else comes after that. The root is the decision. That's why the Rambam puts the halachos of free will in halachos tshuva. Because the foundation of teshuva is will. It's deciding. It's making that difficult choice to become more, to want more, to expect more from yourself. Free will says philosophy. What's that doing in halachos tshuva? No, because the only way you can change the only way you can actually become someone different is if you get into that root point of will within yourself and decide. And it's actually the answer to a, a classic fundamental question, the Rambam. The Rambam says that most people are Bainanim. You know, we have the Tzaddik and we have the Shem and Bainanim. And Bainanim are people who are exactly in the middle, 50-50. And the classic question everyone asks is that I guarantee you most people are not 50-50. Most people are a little bit here, a little bit there. Really, everyone, almost everyone we know are Bainanim? But what's a Bainani? So Tzaddik is someone who always does something right, always makes the right decisions. Risharim are the people who always make the wrong decisions. Bainani are usually people who sometimes they do the right thing, sometimes they do the wrong thing. How can everyone be exactly in that same point? Some people are maybe, you know, a little bit leaning there, a little bit leaning there. Is everyone really in that mill-mill point? But there's a much deeper understanding of Bainani. It's not a, a numerical you're not quantifying how many mitzvahs you've done, how many avarish you've done. A benini is where are you rooted? You see, most people have never decided they're going to be a tzaddik, where everything in their life is devoted towards one cause. 
to living a life of MS, living a life of Vodos Hashem, living a life of actualizing their ultimate potential, devoting their life to, to self-development, to growth, to Talmud Torah, to contributing their life and their talents and their skills to Klai Yisrael, to the world. And those people, on the other hand, haven't decided they're going to devote all of their life to Rishos, to be a Russia. Most people, they just have never decided at all. They've never rooted themselves and said, I am going to devote my life to this. They've just been waiting. They, they have never chosen their identity, have never realized who they're truly supposed to be, and they're still a Bainani. They're still in the middle. But true Shuva is getting outside being a Bainani and realizing what you're truly destined for. It's devoting your life and deciding who you're going to be. Now here's the classic question, how? How do I do that? How do I change what I want? It's like, do I really, if I say, okay, now I want to be great, do I really want to be great? Now I want to devote my life, to, do I really want to do that? So the first stage is tefillah. Tefillah, avodah saratzon, working on your will, working on what you want. But the true purpose of tefillah, true purpose of avodah saratzon, avodah halev, is the second answer, which is realizing that you don't have to change who you are. You don't have to change what you want. You have to recognize who you truly are. The Gemara needed that flamen. I'm a base. Says that when you were in the womb, you learned kula tarakula. And the Vilna Gaon says it doesn't mean just like chumash and rashi. It means that you were learning like a deeper perspective of all of reality. You saw all of truth through a clear lens. And you also saw your purpose, your uniqueness. And then the mal hits you on the mouth, and you forget it. Why? The Vilna Gaon says so. You come into this world and build it yourself. When it was in the womb, it was a gift. It wasn't earned. You come into this world to become you. True teshuva, the Maharal explains, is becoming who you really are, who you're supposed to be, returning to your root, to your fetal state. So Akira's Harasun, and changing what you want is not really just changing what you want, it's discovering what you really want. To live your purpose, to live your ultimate greatness, to achieve all of your potential, to bring everything you're capable of becoming into this world, into actualized potential. And that's true teshuva. Discovering your true Ratzon, which is aligned with the Ratzon Hashem. Becoming your true self. So, obviously, the stages of growth are difficult. You get inspired and you start growing and you overcome difficulty and challenges and you lose the inspiration. You want to give up. Life after that initial decision is a difficult process. But there's two important things to realize. Number one, everything starts based on the decision based on the vision, based on deciding and making that absolute commitment to your greatness. And number two, what helps you overcome the difficulty and actually follow through is remembering your why. Remembering why you made the decision in the first place. Remembering what's this all about. Why am I driven? I'm trying to live my purpose. I'm living with passion. I'm living with meaning. I'm living a life of avodas Hashem. So as we come to Rosh Hashanah, as we come to Yom Hadin, we're really judging ourselves because we decide who we're going to be. So when we come to Rosh Hashanah this year, let's decide, let's root ourselves within reality, let's connect Hashem in the deepest way, and let's make the decision this upcoming year we're going to start achieving or continue achieving or take our achievement to the next level. Let's really tap in to our deepest Ratzon, and let's take that vision of our fetal perfection and let's continue bringing that into reality and becoming our greatest selves. Baruch Hashem, it's finally here. The new Torah Anytime app. It's a revolutionary, game-changing app that has so many incredible features and enhancements. 
It's available right now on the iPhone App Store or an Android Play Store. And don't just get it for yourself. Get everyone you know to get the new Torah Anytime app as well. Here, Rabbi Reichman, it's our great, great honor to call upon our final speaker for tonight, Rabbi Gabriel Friedman. I want to remind everyone to, 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 to continue watching, continue getting inspired. If anyone missed any one of the previous stories to inspire your event, you can email us at eventsachazak.org and we, will, we can share you that link or the call-in information if you want to rewatch any one of the previous stories to inspire events, which we do right before every single one of the Jewish holidays. From the top top speakers, it's a great honor to call upon Rabbi Gavriel Friedman, Rav Gav, from from who 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 really inspires and enthralls and empowers Klai Yisrael with his tremendous, powerful, po- uh, poignant words. And he's as we know he he teaches at so many different age programs and so many different organizations. It's a great honor to call upon Rav Gav. I want to share with you a story that I heard a bunch of years ago from a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Yitzhak Feldheim. He heard this from a congregant of his when he was a rabbi in Yardley, Pennsylvania, a few years ago, perhaps a couple more than a few years ago. In any event, here goes the story. There was a guy living in Philadelphia, a businessman, and he was working in New York. So he used to take the train. and It was a long train, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. And he was hoping, you know, he's going to luck out. He's going to get a seat on the train. He gets on the train. Not only does he get a seat, he ends up getting two seats. He's feeling good. This is great. Uh, you know, 20 minutes into the ride, they stop up for some other station. And a bunch of people get on. And one of the people get on is some kid. And what I mean kid, he's in his early 20s, you know, 21, 22, something like that. But it looks like he's had a rough go at life. And he grabs onto one of these handles, like, on the top. And he's just, like, flipping and flopping, like, all over the place going on with the train. And the guy says to the kid, hey, kid. Why don't you come sit next to me? He had an extra seat next to him. The kid wouldn't hear it. He's like, leave me alone. He, just, he didn't even say he just ignored the guy. I've done it 10 minutes. He's like, come on, kid, just sit down. It's driving me crazy. Come sit. He's like, fine. He sits down, puts his head against the window. He's chilling, doing his thing. After another 10 minutes, the guy's like, bro, what's wrong? He's like, old man, leave me alone. It's like, old man, what are you talking about? I'm a young businessman. He's like, all right, listen, old man, what, what do you want? He goes, just tell me what's bothering you. You look really upset. You look, you look stressed out. Maybe it can help. He's like, ah, just leave me alone. He's like, maybe I can help, man. He's like, fine, do you want to know? He goes, yeah, I want to know. He's like, okay, I'll tell you. He says, okay, let's hear it. He says, my story starts when I was a kid. When I was a young kid, I didn't have any friends. Nobody wanted to play with me. I was, I was a little bit of an outcast. And my parents, seeing that I, I wasn't doing anything with my time, they decided to give me something to help me. And they got me a computer. And this computer became my best friend. I, I spent all day with this computer. And, you know, it's old school. I would take it apart. I'd put it back together. I knew everything about this computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I got older and I got more and more knowledgeable, I started getting involved in coding and learning how to develop and write and all the different stuff to do with computers. And I started writing software. And I really had a breakthrough. And, you know, some big people got wind of what I was doing and they wanted to buy it. And they bought from me my software for an exorbitant amount of money. And my parents all along were like, chill out, slow down, be careful. You don't know what these people are. It could be dangerous. And I just wrote it off. I'm like, hey, you're just jealous of me or whatever it was. And uh, okay, fine. Fast forward a little bit. I'll do it really well. And I met a girl. Of course, she loved me, right? And we fell in love. I was 19 years old. We got married. My parents were like, be careful. I'm like, eh, I don't need your help. I know what I'm doing. And I ended up buying a beautiful apartment. And we were living in the city. And I was, I was living my life. And things were going great. My parents are always warning me, be careful, be careful, be careful. Finally, one day, I'm like, you know, enough of my being careful. Just, just 
leave me alone and I totally shut them out of my life. And I basically uh, told them it's over. Just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you anymore, ever again. I had my wife, I had my apartment, we had a baby, everything's going great. And then somebody came with a great business deal. And a good friend of mine is like, this is it, this is what you got to do, invest. And I said, okay, listen, you know what's going on? And I invested big. I put everything in. And the guy's like, okay, what happened? He goes, I lost everything. I lost it all. He goes, what? He goes, I lost it all. My best friend that pulled the nice move on me and, and he took everything that I owned. And my wife, who I thought loved me, turns out she was there for the money. She turned to me and said, you don't have any money anymore? A loser. And she walked out of the apartment. And my son was one year old at the time. He goes, you don't have any money anymore? Loser. And he walked out. I said, wait a minute, you walk? He's like, doesn't matter. I'm out. And he leaves. And my house is like, you don't have money? Loser. And it walks out of me. I'm like, wow. And I have nothing. The banks are coming after me. I, I have no money to give them. I'm totally lost. And I, and I realized that I have no one in the world to turn to. Even my best friends who I thought were there for me. Turns out they're not. What am I going to do? And I'm thinking the only people in the world that might give me a chance are my parents. But how can I face them? How can I even go and talk with them after the way that I've treated them and behaved towards them? I was too embarrassed. So I figured I'll write them a letter. I wrote them a letter. Dear parents, I'm so genuinely sorry for the way that I treated you. You know, I, I never stopped to really think that you were there just for my best. And I really, I lost everything. I should have listened. And I really have nowhere to go. If you'll have me back, I would love to come back. I'm too embarrassed to speak with you because I can't handle the rejection. And uh, I'll tell you the truth, I, I don't know what to say, but if you'll have me back, if you'll have me back, so I'm writing this letter to you. You know, right by the train station by our house, there's this old oak tree. If you'll have me back, Give me a sign. Put a flag, a white flag on that tree. Put a white flag on the tree. If I come by the train station, I see the white flag is there, I'll know that you, you accept me and you'll have me back. And I'll get off the train. But if there's no flag there, then I'll know that I lost my chance. And that's your call. And I'll just stay in the train. I'll figure out what to do. And this guy, his businessman, was blown away by this. He goes, and what happened? He goes, bro, I'm on the train. He goes, before the oak tree or after? He goes, before. He's like, whoa, man, that's heavy. He goes, yeah, that's heavy. He says, how far to your stop? He goes, it's coming up pretty soon. And then they were quiet. After a few minutes, the kid said, listen, old man. He's like, I'm not old already enough. He goes, old man, all right, give it up. He said, it's coming close. Can you do me a favor? I can't even stand to look at the tree. Could you look for me? Could you look and tell me? What do you see? So the guy says, okay, you got it. I'll look. I'll look. And as I get closer, he's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? He's like, no, not yet. Almost there. Are we there yet? It slows down. He's like, not yet. He goes, kid, I think we're, we're getting closer. He's like, do you see anything? Is there a white flag? Is there anything? And he goes, kid, I think you should look up. And the kid's like, ah. I, I can't, I can't look. I can't, I can't even look. He's like, kid, I'm telling you, I think you should look. And the kid looks up and he sees the entire tree is covered with white flags. 
and his parents are standing by the tree with arms wide open. Gets off the tree and he runs into their embrace. You know that it could be that over this past year and through our lives, we've done things that we're not proud of and that we regret the fact that we did it. But Hashem is a Vinisha Bashamayim. Shuvu alive is Shuvu Eleichem. Hashem says, just come back to me and I'll come back to you. If we've done things we shouldn't have done, then Yalbinu, just white in our sins, Kashele Yalbinu. Just like white, just like that, those flags that are on the tree, beautiful, pure, and white. Understand that it's never too late for a person to come back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's never too late for a person to go back to Hashem. If we just go ahead and we take those steps and we reach out, Hashem is waiting for us with arms wide open. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.